Our guest on this edition of the Australian Deer Podcast is the Honourable Rick Mazza, MLC. Rick was the driving force behind the establishment of the Australian Deer Association in Western Australia before going on to set up the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party WA branch and get elected to the WA Parliament in 2013, starting something of a minor party renaissance in the West. In 2015, Rick had an inquiry established into the powers of the RSPCA, setting in motion an increase in scrutiny which has washed through the nation. Rick has also been responsible for the implementation of private-use kangaroo tags, changes to gunpowder storage, and he's advocated strongly for hunters and shooters in WA. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thank you, Barry. Just to start off with, do you mind just giving us a bit of a background about your life growing up, a bit of your father's background, which is quite interesting, your work and your business life, your retirement, and then what led you to come out of retirement and go into politics? So basically the Rick Mazza story up till 2013. Well, that's, that's a really big lot of questions you got there, Barry, and I, I'm glad you asked them. So if I can start at the beginning, I suppose, yeah, look, I was born in, in Bunbury in West Australia. I still only live within uh, 50 kilometres of Bunbury. My father was an Italian migrant. His father, my grandfather, came out here uh, in 1949 and left his wife and nine children back in Italy. I think originally he worked for the PWD, uh, living in tents, and he saved up uh, enough money for the fares to bring them out one at a time. And uh, unlike sort of the uh, 10-pound POM type arrangement that we had at one stage for migrants to uh, Australia, he had to pay full fare for each each one of them. So it was five years before he got all of his children and his wife finally out here to Australia. And from then he, he married your mum, who's a, a multi-generation Aussie. Yeah, look, mum, mum's a true blue uh, Aussie, if you could say that. She traced her heritage back to 1833, which was just four years after foundation of the state. Along the way, there was a uh, a convict that was sentenced to transportation that lobbed here. In, we actually lobbed in Bunbury because there was a big storm. He couldn't get into Fremantle, and, uh, and that's where he stayed for the rest of his life. But he ended up being the schoolmaster in Bunbury, and amongst his students were uh, Sir John Forrest and Alexander Forrest, which... Uh, were very renowned people in Western Australia as far as the establishment and progression of the state's concerned. Yeah, a bit of history in, in Western Australia. I grew up with uh, a clash of two cultures, really, um, new migrants to the to the country who couldn't even speak English when they first got here and uh, a long-term sixth-generation family on the mother's side. And both of those stories are very, very WA stories, aren't they? Western Australia is still very much a, a frontier sort of community? Yeah, West Australia is. I mean, we've got a massive land mass here, almost uh, a third of, of Australia, and I think our population is still less than 2.5 million. So, yeah, look, it is it is uh, a developing state, no doubt about that, um, but we're blessed with resources. Um, and, of course, Australians are Australians. It doesn't matter where you go anywhere in Australia. Uh, I don't think the accent even changes much compared to, say, places like Europe. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think... I think Western Australia is a good place to be. So you grew up, you went and worked in the mines like many young West Australians do? Well, I started off with an apprenticeship, Barry, with uh, with Westrail and completed my trade as a heavy-duty mechanic. After I finished my apprenticeship, I, I got a job with Worsley uh, when Worsley's been constructed back in the very early 80s, might have been 1980, 1981. And with the generous pay rates then, I was able to put a, enough aside that when construction of the site that I was on had completed, 
I invested in a, in a service station in Bunbury at the age of 21 uh, and ran that for a couple of years. And from there you went into real estate? Yeah, I had a customer that, that came into the service station quite regularly. And when I said I'd sold the, the business, uh, she said, well, you should have a go at real estate because, um, you know, she, she just entered the industry. She said, I think you'd be quite good at it. So I spent the next 20 odd years as a real estate representative to start with, and then an agent, I had a franchise network and a conveyancing agency as well. So uh, the, m- most of my career was in the real estate and property industries. And then you retired fairly young. You and Brenda retired to your magnificent farm that I came and visited you there one morning. It's um, this spectacular home perched on top of a hill. You're fairly young when you, when you left that working life. Yeah, so 2006, I was 45. We sold all of our business interests. I mean, we'd had a very punishing type of business and demanding business that we were in. So we thought the timing was right. Sold everything in 2006. Spent some time with the kids because the kids were going through that sort of late teens, early 20s time, which can be very challenging for parents. Um, So I had the luxury of actually spending some time with them uh, and helping them get through that patch. Uh, And we did that for seven years. It was sort of around that time that you started um, agitating to start a branch of the ADA in the West, which all these terrible people on the Eastern Seaboard were very sceptical about and didn't offer you a great deal of assistance. What was the driver there? Well, there's a few drivers. I, in retirement, got back to the interest that I I hadn't had time for, which was fishing and, and hunting. Bought some new firearms because of the ones I had, I bought when I was 16 years old, so I needed a bit of an upgrade. And I just sort of started to follow a bit of online stuff and decided that, uh, you know, things weren't too good in Western Australia for the shooting and fishing community. Uh, There's a lot of green influence in the Western Australian Parliament, a lot of lockouts for four-wheel drives, all the usual things that uh, outdoors people really get quite frustrated about. So uh, two things happened. First of all, the presence of deer in Western Australia became apparent and uh, we had little pockets sort of popping up here and there and you had to really work hard to find out where they were, but they were present. And I had followed the ADA for some time. I thought they were a really good organisation that promoted ethical uh, hunting and and obviously um, deer. I uh, got in contact with a Barry Howlett, Howlett, which was uh, someone more your senior, Barry, and he helped me out a lot, actually, in putting together a, a formation meeting. There's a couple of guys came out to Western Australia and we had, oh, I would say probably at the time, about 50 people attend. So there was a lot of interest from people interested in joining and forming a branch in Western Australia. So uh, I started off as the, the inaugural president. We built it up to, I think we needed something like um, 50 members for the ADA to recognise us as an official branch, and we got to that. Along the way, I also got interested in the Shooters Fishers Party, as it was known at that time, and uh, decided to go to New South Wales and meet Robert Borzak and Robert Brown to have a discussion with them about forming a branch here, because I thought that would also go well for the shooting and hunting community. So I did that, and there was a lot of common ground. They pretty much, I think, in a nutshell, are based on old-fashioned country values, country conservatives, and had a practical viewpoint to politics. So I came back and and set about setting up the party in WA in 2012. And it wasn't an easy task because they insisted I charge a a, a membership fee. And there's quite a few small parties that pop up 
around the place. We've got quite a number at this election this, this time around. But of course, they just sit in a shopping centre and you know sign people up for free. But I'd, I'd actually charge a $30 membership fee. So it took a little while. And to get 500 members who are enrolled to vote means you have to actually get 600 members because a lot of them aren't. But we got to it just in time, managed to uh, get registered, I think, in, in early 2013 to contest the election. And I remember the formation meeting we had, it, it surprised me a lot. I had Robert Balzac come over. And of all places, we, we held the meeting in Fremantle, which is a... The, the a, green bastion of WA. Greenies, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, fortunately, they didn't know we were there. But but so we packed the room out. There was a lot of people interested, which was encouraging as well. So we got registered and we managed to win a seat in the very first time round. So we were quite um, quite happy about that. And in 2013, I was elected to the upper house. Which is a, a significant change and it was... um the first time really there's been a pro-shooting voice in that place. I know we came over and, and did some work in the Parliament House there and it, it was pretty apparent to us that until you'd come along, there hadn't been much in the way of shooting in the political sphere in WA. That's not a criticism of any of the groups over there. It's just you've certainly raised the profile of shooters and of hunters within that place. What does hunting mean to you personally? That's an interesting question and a complex one too, Barry. I think there was a, a someone else who had said that that hunting was very different to someone who was a bushwalker and that, you know, some people are spectators of nature and others participate. And I, I think that hunting uh, is very much part of a, a person's being uh, and getting out there in the environment, you know, shooting your own food and processing it uh, for the table, to me, is is something that's very important to me. And look, fishing is much the same. It's aquatic hunting and, and actually catching a feed of fish, processing that for your family and having a fresh feed of fish is much the same. Yeah, the food element's something that certainly shines through in the Western Australian branch of ADA, but more in the hunting scene more broadly. You've got Jason Spencer with his hunt, catch, cook over there. I know I attended a um, ADA hunter education weekend that your brother catered and it was just a wild game feast the entire weekend. It was it was something that's really deeply, it seems to be deeply ingrained in the values of hunters in WA that we eat what we hunt. And really pleasing to see. is a really good culture in the West, in my view. Touched earlier on the broader groups in Western Australia, and what we've noticed is that they're remarkably aligned and cooperative. And from, so that, you know, WSAA, WA, Firearm Traders, ADA, all of the smaller groups seem to be working fairly well together. From an outsider's point of view, you've played a fair role in that unity. What's the key to that success and how important do you think that is? Well, I suppose I I drew on some of my real estate training, Barry, in really being able to bring people together for a common cause. It was important to me that the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia, the WA branch, Firearm Traders Association, some of the um, small hunting groups like that, the um, hunting and conservation groups that we had in the state and the ADA came together because the last thing you need in something that's controversial like shooting and hunting and even fishing or even using a four-wheel drive uh, in the environment these days, the last thing you need is disunity 
amongst those groups because it's a divide and conquer thing for those that oppose us. So look, we we spent time making sure that those relationships were strong. If there's any issues, we, we talked them out. And I'm very pleased in Western Australia that those groups are strong together. There was a review of the Firearms Act back in 2015 with the Law Reform Commission who put together 143 recommendations for changes to the Firearms Act. Now, many of those are actually quite favourable for firearms owners, which would make life a lot easier, particularly the processing. That evolved into a ministerial working group. And on that ministerial working group was myself, the SSAA, the Firearm Traders Association and WAPOL. So those groups worked together with WAPOL to put together recommendations to the minister. Unfortunately, last term, we didn't get to the point of having amendments. I was promised that they would be drafted and submitted to Cabinet. So uh, if I get re-elected in, an, in another couple of weeks, well, then that's certainly that, something that we'll pick up and, and pursue vigorously. But I think any state where you have division amongst the groups can only diminish what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, like I said, it's a really a model other states. Um, we'll just go to a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. The Australian Deer Association leads the fight for hunting and wild deer management in Australia. ADA members receive six issues a year of Australian Deer Magazine, public liability insurance, firearm insurance, the opportunity to meet fellow hunters and attend branch meetings and events, exclusive hunting and education opportunities and the knowledge that they are making a tangible contribution to the future of deer hunting in Australia. Go to www.ostdeer.com.au to join the deer people today. We touched um, in our introduction on your achievements in Parliament, quite briefly. What do you see as your most important achievements in there so far, and and why is that? Well, I, I think probably educating the Parliament and the public to what hunting's about. As the, the president in the first term said to me, uh, when you were elected, we were expecting this uh, gun-toting redneck to come in and cause us some grief. But he said, you're actually all right and quite measured. So I think what it did was sort of portray the uh, hunting and shooting community uh, as being level-headed and measured. Uh, some of the things that we did achieve was that uh, there was an inquiry into recreational hunting on public land, which, of course, um, we don't have in Western Australia. That inquiry, I think yourself and, and a couple of other representatives from the ADA had attended some of the hearings before the committee, and we had travelled to New South Wales and Victoria to look at the models that they had there as well. Now, there were recommendations in that report that a trial of recreational hunting uh, be had in two locations in the state. The government at the time didn't do that, but what, they, what has evolved out of it is our Department of Environment now has programs with hunting groups like the ADA, the SSAAWA, where they they organise areas where there is a feral animal issue, whether that be deer, goats or pigs, and they provide a hunt, uh, like a camping area, an MOU, and uh, those that participate need to do an accreditation. And, uh, and away we go. And look, I've been on a couple of those, only just for one night, spending one night in certain areas where there, there was deer. You know, they're, they're very, very valuable. And I think they're a bit of a pilot program to eventually be able to get recreational hunting legislated, which leads me to the Game and Feral Animal Control Bill, a private member's bill, 
that I introduced into the parliament in 2018, uh, and it got to a second reading situation. We didn't get that you know, approved at this point in time, but it's something that I, if re-elected, I would certainly reintroduce to the parliament uh, to put forward again, because I think it's very important that we enshrine uh, public land hunting in legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, even to get to where we've got so far is a quantum leap from where hunting was with access to public land and, and just being accepted by land managers from where we were in 2013, which leads us on to the 2021 election. I'll just play a bit of audio that you're probably familiar with and we'll go from there. Hi, Rick Mazza, leader of the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers in WA. There is a lot of scuttlebutt that there is a preference deal between the shooters, fishers and farmers and labour, which has been perpetuated by our competitors and unfortunately some detractors from within, without knowing the facts. The truth is by necessity, we have preference arrangements with all parties, including Liberal, Labor, Nationals and minor parties. In the 15 lower house seats we are contesting, our second preferences go to Liberals in six seats, Nationals in five seats and Labor in four. Our preferences will not change who will form government in the lower house this election. I think that outcome is clear. The real contest is in the upper house, where there is a grave risk that Labor will have the numbers to take control of both houses, negating the filter the upper house provides. Even Labor voters have expressed concern about this. The very complex nature of the upper house preference system requires some pragmatism in order to succeed at the election. Every party must be numbered, so at some point, you have to preference everyone. Apart from a couple of minor parties, the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party has put the major parties last. What has grabbed media attention is that in two regions, Labor is preferencing the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers before the Greens. The only ones that will see that as a bad thing is the Greens. This has not influenced the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers preference numbering in the Upper House regions, where protection of the Upper House means that Labor and the Greens are last. You can check this on the WA Electoral Commission website where you can find this information firsthand. We have positioned ourselves as best we can to win seats. We have not and will not ever compromise our values, ideals or the pursuit of our policies. The fact remains that if Shooters, Fishers and Farmers is not elected at the March 13 election, we cannot represent you. At the state election, you're the one that can determine whether the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers continues to represent your interests. That sums it up fairly well, I think, Rick. I saw some analysis in a newspaper a week or so ago when the preferences all came out on the WA website. Uh, there was an analysis basically saying that the preferences seem to be favouring shooters and fishers far more than they're favouring labour. It's also interesting to note in that video you sort of were well ahead of the opposition leader who came out the other day and conceded the election, which is one of the most extraordinary things I've seen in Australian politics um, in my years of watching, was to concede an election weeks before it's run. I actually sort of admired the bloke's honesty in that. But the point is that the results for the lower house are known and it's the upper house where we really need to focus. Why does it matter so much to get the shooters and fishers re-elected in WA? Well, Barry, look, you're quite right. The assembly where government is formed, I think, is a fait accompli, and even the opposition leader, as you pointed out, has run up the white flag. Now, there's, there's a bit of debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, 
you know, he's conceded that he can't win it. Currently, out of 59 um, seats in the Assembly, 40 are held by Labor, and the commentators are saying that uh, Labor will hold more than 40 at this next election. So I think um, the opposition will probably be able to carpool their entire uh, representation in the Assembly. Which, so which, so the real context... We, la- we laugh, but it, that's not good for democracy, having, having weak opposition. very, very, very bad for democracy, um, Barry, you're right. So the real contest is in the upper house. Now, it's a finely balanced thing. The last term of, of parliament, there was a majority of one against Labor and the Greens. Now, if that balance shifts, then there will be no filter. There will be no house of review. It's simply legislation that's approved and rubber stamped in the assembly will go to the upper house and just be forced through without much in the way of amendments um, that could be successful. So it would be very bad for democracy if, if both houses are held by, well, whether it be held by Labor or by Liberal Nationals. I mean, you know, the idea of having a house of review is to have uh, community representation to filter legislation that comes through. Now, the shooters, fishers and farmers, it's very important that we have representation in the upper house. We're hopeful of the possibility of having three. That would be the, the best outcome for us, but at least get one more back to continue the work we've been doing on public land hunting, to continue to advocate for responsible firearm ownership, small things like private use transport tags for kangaroo carcasses might sound fairly minor, but for a lot of people, they would go out, uh, a farmer would say, look, I've got an issue with some kangaroos. They're in plagued proportions here in Western Australia at the moment. I don't know what it's like in Victoria, but the kangaroo uh, commercial industry has uh, declined somewhat. So there's large numbers of them around. So recreational shooters will go out and shoot a few kangaroos. Now, in the past, if they took the carcass home, they're doing so illegally, and it was a risk. It was a risk for them. At least now they can tag them, they can take them home, they can use the carcass for their own personal consumption for dog food. So that, that was, I think, quite a big win for us, and that would never have been discussed before within the parliament or within the government itself. Other things like powder storage, where in Western Australia there was a requirement to store propellant both under the Firearms Act, which required a Schedule 4 steel safe, and also with the Mines Department requirements. Now, when it was gently pointed out to police that when if there was a house fire and propellant was in an enclosed steel cabinet, that when firefighters went in, there was a chance that they could be injured with a bomb, um, things changed quite rapidly. And uh, we had regulations change where now you only need to store propellant uh, under the Mines Act here. So... These sorts of things are put forward to the parliament, which normally they wouldn't be. And in fact, many members have said to me over the last eight years, we've discussed things in the parliament we would never have discussed before you came on the scene. Whether that be biosecurity, recreational hunting, firearms laws, right to farm, all those sorts of things, even vegan activists. We've discussed those things on motions I've put forward. Private property rights has been a huge issue over here in Western Australia. And the shooters, fishers and farmers have been the main drivers of having an inquiry into private property rights. And a lot of that stems from my profession as a real estate agent in years gone past. But uh, things like environmentally sensitive areas really do impact farmers. So we've, we've managed to articulate a lot of those things within the parliament and actually make some changes. I suppose the main thing that the everyday hunter can do is put one above the line for shooters, fishers and farmers party in their upper house and vote for you in the lower house as well. You've got 
some very good candidates running to support you in um, a number of lower house seats. If people want to do a bit more than that, what can they do? Well, look, we're always in need of volunteers, Barry. It's it's uh, interesting, and I'm sure all parties have the same the same problem. But when there's an issue arises, the phone rings hot for assistance. Yeah. When you ask for a couple of volunteers to hand out some how to vote cards on a pre poll, uh, people are busy with a with a shoot on for the weekend. So, <laughs> you know, it can be a bit disappointing at times. But certainly, look, putting putting the hand up to volunteer for us to hand out how to vote cards is a really important part of the process and it makes a big difference uh, on the votes that we receive. All right. Well, that sort of brings us to the end. Are there any closing thoughts you wanted to leave us with or anything that you think we've missed that you'd like to get across? Uh, look, Mary, I, I just think that uh, it's important that we continue our presence in Western Australia with the shooters, fishers and farmers. We've now got seven members of parliament in three states. I think we can grow from there. But unless we have that type of representation in the parliament, not, not just for firearms laws, I mean, firearms laws are important, it's something that we've got to keep a close eye on, but all sorts of other things that go with it, like public land hunting, even animal rights issues, or whatever the case may be, it's a constant battle for us all. So unless we have that sort of representation in parliaments around Australia, then our lifestyle will be under attack at all times. All right, Rick Mazza, thanks for joining us on the podcast and thanks both for your contribution to ADA so far and your contribution to Hunters in Parliament so far and all the best of luck for the election. Thank you, Barry. My pleasure. The Australian Deer Podcast is brought to you by the Australian Deer Association, proudly in partnership with Stony Creek. We are the Deer People.